super. So these are texts from 2016 and 2017 that I sent to these two lads, and I don't even think they're out this morning, are they? No, so I can't even embarrass them. But this was uh, more embarrassing for me because I couldn't uh, work out the answer to any of these questions. So you can see there, I asked Ben, what is the nth term of the sequence 10, 7, 4, and 1? Uh, so, of course, he dutifully gave me the answer, and, Al and, and a year later, I, I went off uh, uh, Ben and moved on to Alex, and he helped me. And uh, so, you know, th this, was, this was the extent of, of my knowledge. Now that a Fergus, of course, has moved to A-level, um, these are the sort of questions that appear in his textbook. Uh, and I'm kind of uh, lost. So what is 4x squared plus 12x plus 9 all over x squared plus 6x divided by 4x squared minus 9 over 2x squared plus 9x minus 18? Easy peasy. Of course, the good thing about his textbook and most Maz textbooks are that the answers are at the back. These are, these are fantastic things. So I'm told that the answer to that particular simplification is 2x plus 3 over x. Brilliant. How do you ever get to that? That's why the working out is so important and why in an exam there's plenty of marks for the work that goes on to get from the question to the answer. And so today, as we're picking up uh, in the uh, book of Ephesians, if the answer to the question is, what is God's big plan for eternity? Or to put it another way, the way that Paul puts it in the first chapter, what is the mystery of His will according to His purpose? And we've already found the answer in verse 10 of that chapter. It's like going to the back of the textbook. It's to unite all things in Christ. The answer to the big question is the unification of heaven and earth, a whole new creation with Christ at the center, all things brought under the rule and reign of Jesus. And these places may look very different from our worldview, but we look forward to a day when, as Paul puts it in Colossians, Jesus will one day reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Please enjoy and admire this magic animation from PowerPoint that will try to animate this amazing event on the screen. Look at that. Fantastic. I took ages for doing that last night. So that's, that's the answer. And today we're going to look at the working out. So we know how to get from here to here, but do we really know how to get there? Chapter 2 helps us to see how we get from the position of unification, um, because we will see what changes need to be made in each one of us. And then in the second half of uh, chapter 2, and we'll pick it up uh, later in, in our teaching, uh, we, we begin to see what has to happen in order to bring all of us into unity. So, with that in mind, let's look at the first 10 verses uh, of chapter 2. These are wonderful things. This is a fantastic passage. Some difficult stuff too, so it would be good for you to keep it open uh, on the app or in your Bible in front of you. It's page 9, 
977, 977 in the, in the pew Bibles if you need one of those. So, Ephesians chapter 2, and we'll go from 1 to 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in, one, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Amen. There are some passages in the Bible that deserve memorizing, and I reckon this is one of them. I expect at some stage uh, you've been told by someone that they have some good news and they have some bad news, and, and which do you want first? And, and I know for me, I tend to go for the bad news first in the hope that the good news will somehow trump uh, the bad. And almost something like this is going on in these first 10 uh, verses. Paul starts by reminding uh, the church in Ephesus uh, what they were, uh, the bad news, in order for them to grasp just how good the good news is. You could even describe this as uh, in two parts, uh, like the depths of our past uh, and the heights of our present. So bear with me as we first look at the bad news as we delve into the depths uh, of despair. Paul says, uh, that's the, Paul says that you, uh, that's the Gentiles, and, and by extension all of us, were dead. We were following evil ways and we were uh, to our core subject uh, to God's judgment. The first verse says we were dead in trespasses and sins. In the Bible, to be dead doesn't mean your heart stops beating. Uh, it's more about being cut off uh, from the giver and sustainer uh, of life. So if you think of some uh, cut flowers that you might uh, have bought for someone you love, uh, I'm sure they look uh, rather beautiful. Uh, but the reality is that as soon as they were cut off from the source of life, the, the soil, they were effectively dead. It's only a matter of days before they will uh, wither and die. Or if you're doing uh, the ironing, uh, something I do from time to time, um, and the cable is pulled out and the plug falls out of the socket, the power goes down, well, you can still kind of use the heat from the iron. Oh, it still looks like an iron, but soon loses any value. It's cut off from its source of energy. It no longer has the power to do what it was made to do. The Bible says, in effect, the natural state of all human beings from birth is that of death, cut off from God and not having the ability to be the people we were intended to be. 
Paul tells us that we were dead because of our trespasses and sins. The idea of trespassing is crossing over the line, going where we shouldn't go, in this case being rebellious by breaking God's rules. And when we read of uh, the word sin, uh, think of a target. Uh, To sin is to miss the target, to fail or to fall short of uh, God's standard. So our natural state, as Paul tells us, ever since the beginning is to selfishly rebel or to hopelessly fail. And then Paul says that we were followers of the course of this world and the prince of the power of the air. This is kind of best translated as being dragged along. So we were dragged along by this world that has rejected God's rightful authority. This world that that when its creator showed up, it crucified him. Not only that, we were dragged along by, we were following the ruler of the air, where Paul here is is referring to demonic forces. And so that we can't blame everybody else, Paul goes on in verse 3 to remind us that we ourselves did what we wanted when we wanted that innate desire in each one of us to get dragged down by our own selfish desires. Uh, our own selfish pleasures, often at the expense of others and often bringing out our very ugly side. Paul says this applies to everyone, not just bad people or ignorant people or not just the Gentiles. He even includes himself. It moves from you to we. Uh, He says elsewhere that he was the worst of sinners. So why is this such a big deal? Apart from the fact that it makes the world a pretty miserable place to live, it's such a big deal because verse 3 tells us that we were destined for judgment. We were, by definition, objects of or children of wrath. God's wrath is not his temper or anger like some old school headmaster. God's wrath is his measured, fair response to all that is evil. Not because he is bad, but because he is good. He won't let evil have the last word. And this is tough teaching for those who don't accept God as their Savior and Lord. Years ago, there were even some folks in the States who were uncomfortable singing about the wrath of God. They asked the Gettys to change the line in I'm Christ alone, from the wrath of God was satisfied to the love of God was satisfied. The writers refused. And we might not like the idea of punishment for wrongdoing, but just think of the world that we live in right now. Everyone longs for justice. We protest for justice. Sometimes it's kind of disturbing what people will do uh, to administer justice. But even just think of yourself and how you feel when you have been harshly dealt with. The fact that God hates evil and will one day bring justice is a good thing for the world. But it's sobering news because it's not just about all those people out there in the headlines that God will deal with. Um, He knows full well what's going on in here as well. All of us 
we're dead in our sins and heading for a day when all the greed, the hurtful words, the lies, the fits of anger, the unfaithfulness, and all our rejection would be laid bare, and we were powerless to do anything about it. We were objects of wrath. Now, before everybody walks out, there is the good news, and here it comes, and it starts with a marvelous but. Verse 4 says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love in which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We should always sit up and listen when it says in the Bible, but God. There's a study there in itself. Can you point to any of these? Jesus, or Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for harm, but God meant it for good. And the waters prevailed over the earth for 150 days, but God remembered Noah. And then in the Psalms, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength. The wonderful news of the Bible is that God is not like you and me. If I had made the world and I had placed all these people here to enjoy it, and they turned against me and treated me with disdain, I think I would do away with the lot of them. We live in a, a cancel culture. Uh, that's the narrative for sorting out those who don't fit in with our idea of how the world should be. Unfortunately, God is not like this. He does not treat us as we deserve. Despite our rejection of Him, He looks at us, spiritually dead people, with compassion and mercy and love, and He has acted Himself to make us alive. It's in Jesus that this has been made possible. Verse 7 of the previous chapter says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This makes it possible for us to be made alive with Christ, restored back to a relationship with him with no fear of judgment, but with the certain hope of eternity with him in a world made new. We have been lifted out of the depths to the highest of heights. You, have, uh, you, you might have seen in the news uh, the, the, the uh, 41 trapped uh, miners in northern India in the Himalayas and the ongoing rescue uh, to free them. For me, uh, it reminded me of another event a few years ago. In 2018, on the 24th of that, of that year in Thailand, you might remember the story, a group of 12 uh, teenage boys um, from a local football team and their coach uh, had entered the Tam Luang Caves. They'd gone in to celebrate somebody's birthday, but shortly after they entered the cave, uh, unexpected heavy rain fell and prevented them from leaving the cave system. Over the coming days, the rainfall caused the, the, the caves to flood, uh, driving the boys further and further into the darkness of the caves. They ended up about two and a half miles into this complex cave system with little food uh, and no light uh, and no means of escape. They were effectively dead. 
with no chance of getting themselves out of the situation. Meanwhile, outside the caves, and you may remember it, frantic activity was going on uh, to find a way to rescue these boys. Fifteen days later, on the 8th of July, after an immense amount of planning and expertise and resources, uh, the the rescue mission was launched. Eighteen professional divers and medical crew made their way through the underground network, stopping at various points to top up uh, on oxygen. And when they finally reached the group, uh, they brought wetsuits and face masks to deliver oxygen. I didn't realize this until I watched the, the Netflix drama of this entire incident, that the boys were actually anesthetized. They were knocked unconscious just in case they were to panic along the way uh, and along this treacherous route and jeopardize uh, their own safety or those of their rescuers. Each of them were tethered to a diver and they were transported uh, along the cave system. And by the 10th of July, amazingly, everyone was rescued. It was estimated that around 10,000 people were involved at a cost of up to $10 million. And sadly, one of the Thai divers who was part of the team trying to supply the boys' cave with oxygen oxygen tanks, he he lost his life. Well, 2,000 years ago, a rescue plan was put in place, having been planned before the creation of the universe by a triune creator God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. A plan to rescue mankind from inevitable death, from sin. God the Son humbled himself, entered our world as a man, and having lived a perfect life, he endured, he died a criminal's death. And as he hung on the cross, not only was he enduring all the physical pain at the hands of men, he had for our sake become an object of wrath. On on the cross, God's right anger was poured out on Jesus in our place so that we could go free. This rescue resulted in multitudes of, of people, including us, who were dead in our sin, who have not been tethered to a diver, but tethered to Jesus and have been made alive and been united uh, to Christ. And Paul tells us that not only has this happened, we have been made alive, we have been raised up, but we've also been seated with him. Uh, The work of a priest in the temple was relentless. They never sat down. But we're told that when Jesus' work was done, he sat down at the right hand of the Father of God, uh, the right hand of the Father. And we get to be part of that, seated with him in the heavenly places. Uh, This is incredible news. And maybe you've been uh, hearing this for thousands of times in your Christian experience. Maybe some of us much less. And let's not become blasé. How blessed we are that we have been moved from death to life. And there are some wonderful stories in the Bible that speak of God's mercy and love and how he treats men and women. Uh, so wonderfully. Think for a second of uh, Lazarus and how Jesus intervened in the, in the life of uh, the death of uh, Lazarus. Jesus, the resurrection and the life, told Lazarus to come out of the tomb. 
He made him alive. He raised him up. And what did he do? They sat together and dined together. Or what about uh, the prodigal son, the story of the prodigal son? Here the father not only welcomed the the rebellious son back, but he showed him compassion, embracing him, showing such dignity, and restoring him again to sit around the table in the family home. Just think about it. We have been given these new identities in the here and now, in the present, based on our future dwelling place. Often when we went uh, on family holidays and the much debated location of choice was booked, all of our thinking in the months running up to the start of that holiday was based on where we were going. Our finances got tied up in that. We saved money. We, we, we thought about what we would do while we were there. I would even buy a, a rough guide to wherever and, and read up, and, and we might even learn some of the language. Much of our identity in the months running up to that future uh, destination uh, was wrapped and shaped by it. Our perspectives changed, and so it is with us having the mind of Christ seeing things as he sees them, putting value on things that will last and not the stuff that doesn't. And as we move further down this passage, I know time is is limited, but from verse 8, there are three quick things that I want uh, to share. This uh, good news just keeps on uh, giving. One is that we are saved uh, by grace. Uh, The second is there's no place for boasting in the Christian life. And then thirdly, God's grace inspires us to good works. So one, we are saved by grace. So from verse 8, Paul reminds us of some very important aspects of God's part in this. Just like the boys in the cave, unconscious as they were rescued, they did very little to win their salvation. All they had to do was trust in the divers they were holding on to. And for us, our salvation was God's initiative and his efforts and not our own. The, 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 the two verses say, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. Paul is at pains to talk about grace, the grace that we have been shown. It's peppered throughout this uh, whole passage. Verse 5, it is by grace you've been saved. Verse 7, in order that he might show the incomparable riches of his grace. Verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. The word grace is from the Greek charis, and uh, we have a few charises uh, here at church It essentially means gift, the physical gift, um, but also metaphorically it can mean uh, uh, the attitude or the attribute of one giving the gift. We often use the word grace, obviously, to describe God's nature or, or how he feels. And I reckon here that Paul wants us to know the mismatch that there is between how deserving we are of this gift or undeserving, uh, as, as the case is, and the abundance of the gift itself. Scholars would call this the in- incongruity uh, of the gift. God's grace to each one of us is his undeserved kindness to us. We're saved not because we are good, but because God is good. He loved us enough to do what it takes 
to forgive us our sins and give us this new life and a glorious future. Let's be clear, there's nothing in my life that could in any way be construed as, having, as doing enough to satisfy God's standard. You and I deliberately crossed over the boundary line and completely missed the mark. The song says, two wonders here that I confess, my worth and my unworthiness. Number two, there's no place for boasting in the Christian life. Back to the story of these Thai, uh, the Thai cave rescue. Imagine uh, you're one of the boys and you come out after the rescue uh, and you're asked by the press, how was it from your perspective? And imagine you said, well, I'm pretty athletic. I have a, a paddy um, uh, diving qualification and I've been practicing holding my breath for ages. Uh, so I pretty much had it under control the whole time. Of course, you wouldn't say that. Any boasting you would do is in the diver who risked his life to carry you through the floodwaters and to save you while you were unconscious, trusting in him to all you were doing, contributing nothing else whatsoever. And it's, if you are a Christian today, it's not because you realize how good you are, it's because you know how bad you are. And when you've put your faith in Jesus, he saves you by his grace. So let's boast in him and not ourselves. And then finally, getting on to verse 10, God's grace inspires us to good works. I wonder how shaped we are in our sort of Western modern capitalist society when we think of giving graciously. I reckon we see a gift as having no reason, a spontaneous outpouring of our generosity with no strings attached. I'm not sure if that's how other societies see it, and, and I, reckon, I recognize that gift-giving is complicated in some cultures, but as I've considered grace in the light of Paul's teaching, I've allowed myself the room to see that gifts are often given with some kind of reciprocation in mind. That idea that in giving you a gift, I want to establish some sort of connection or relationship. And hopefully you too will see that God's grace is much more than just a bottomless brunch. Paul wants us to see that this gift from God as having an obligation to respond in trust, of course, and what is trust? It's offering our loyalty to the one who offered you the gift in the first place. In the past, when churches invited its members to collectively give to a missionary, it was described, and I didn't quite understand it at the time in my youth, it was described as a fellowship offering. There was a sense that in giving to this missionary, we were bonded. We were forming a connection in showing, in the act of showing grace. Now, this idea doesn't diminish the gift itself. In fact, it could be seen as even more important. Cheap grace is an expression that Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, used uh, to describe the idea that the efforts of Jesus would be completely belittled or cheapened if we did nothing in response or even failed to accept God's full and complete forgiveness. Verse 10 says, For we are his workmanship, 
created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You might say, hang on for a minute. I thought you said we were saved by grace and not by works. But now you're telling me there's some sort of catch or small print. Are there strings attached? Well, let's be clear. Paul is all about being saved by grace and that our salvation has been won. It is secure. We are alive in Christ. But he will also lean in very hard on our moral conduct and how we will be held accountable for what we have done. For many people, this might be seen as a contradiction because I, I thought you said it was a gift. What do you mean I have to give, to, uh, give an account? But in Paul's mind, God's grace is perfect. It's given to someone who is not worthy, and the proof that has been received is our loyalty and our gratitude, which leads to good works. This is maybe what Paul was getting at when he spoke of himself in 1 Corinthians 15. We'll deviate for a bit and then come back. Verse 9 of, of that passage says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. This is a follower of, Christ, of Jesus who used to arrange the assassination of Christians. He carries that his whole life. He even says he shouldn't be an apostle. But what he says, look what he says in the next sentence. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. It's only by God's grace. I don't deserve it, but he gave me the gift anyway. And look at, then look at what Paul says next. His grace towards me was not in vain. He gave me the gift, and I've been giving back ever since. He says that he didn't earn the gift, but he's giving loyalty in return in light of the gift. And then look what Paul says. On, on the contrary, I worked harder than any of those apostles, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So what does grace mean here? Grace is like a, a power. It's like a, a motivating force. It's like an ongoing source of energy and inspiration. And so when Paul considers the gift and the giver, it's the very thing that instinctively motivates him to good works. And that's the outcome of our salvation. It's part of the privilege of being saved. Now that we're saved, we have been given the opportunity to work in with God's eternally facing plans. And interestingly, those plans were designed before eternity passed, in eternity past. The idea of a partnership between God and you united together is fundamental to the good works that we are to do. God and you working as one. This is the unity that Paul is talking about. You know, just think about how he uses that language. God is the gardener, but we work in planting and watering. God is the master builder, but we are the laborers. Jesus talks about it too in John 15, that we are to bear fruit, but only if we abide in the vine. In Paul's head, it is completely possible to say that God works in us and at the same time, we are to work for him. We tend to think of things as being mutually exclusive. I did this, so therefore you didn't. But in, in, in Paul's eyes, 
in Paul's views, he views this connection between Jesus as being integral, as being united with Christ, part of this new humanity, the mystery of godliness, and all of this is connected to the perfect grace uh, that he has shown. So as we go out into this week, into our worlds, uh, there are good works that God has planned for us that we should walk in them. And if you don't know, and you should, but if you don't know what they are, well, read the rest of Ephesians, uh, and that'll give you a few pointers. So what is uh, our motivation this week? Is it to live in the light of God's grace in your life? Is it to see the world from his perspective? Is it to show grace like you've been shown? Well, perhaps you in these last few minutes uh, have seen that the God that you don't yet know wants there to be a but in your life, to lift you from the depths to the heights, not that you deserve it, but that he loves you simply because he loves you. Maybe this morning you need to trust him for your salvation. Move, nothing more is needed. Undeserving as you are, take the gift, move from death to life, from darkness to light, with the glorious future ahead and a life lived in unity with Jesus, who loved you and gave himself for you. Let's, uh, let's just close our time uh, with a prayer and these are the words uh, of a well-known hymn that we sing often. Let's use these words as our prayer uh, as we close uh, today. Our Father, what gift of grace is Jesus, our Redeemer? There's no more for heaven now to give. He is our joy, our righteousness and freedom, our steadfast love, our deep and boundless peace. Thank you, Lord. No fate we dread. We know we are forgiven. The future sure, the price it has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for our pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. O Lord, hear us. Because with every breath we long to follow Jesus. For he has said that he will bring us home. And day by day we know he will renew us until we stand with joy before the throne. Father, to this we hold. Our hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him. When the race is complete, still our lips shall repeat, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Amen.